In our study in the Alibet Discourse, we are going to look at an event that is one of the most important events of all world history. In fact, we've said before in this class, as we've looked at other studies, that the biblical events, particularly those that are emphasized not only in Old Testament, but reiterated over and over again in the New Testament, those events are the most important events of all of world history, and it's really world history that revolves around those events. We almost are indoctrinated into thinking that when you study world history, well, that's world history. Well, that's superficial world history. What is really world history is what God is accomplishing in the universe because it's his creation. And everything, essentially, is moving towards a very pivotal event in world history, and we're going to look at the passage that describes that event this morning. So it's a well, glorious event. It's his story. Yep, it's his story. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we emphasize enough these events. You can't think of an event that is more important than any one of the major biblical events. And I lay out 11 Old Testament events and 10 New Testament events. There's not an event is more important. They're not discussed in a world history book, but they're more important than any others. Because that is really world history. So we want to understand the times that we're living in, because we're part of that plan of God, and it's heading in a direction. We're looking at the Olivet Discourse that's giving us some insight into that future plan. And when the disciples were listening to the Lord Jesus Christ, over Jesus' shoulder was the ancient city of Jerusalem, and they had something of a view like this background slide there, taken from the Mount of Olives. We've looked at the setting of the Olivet Discourse, and the setting, obviously, city of Jerusalem, Mount of Olives off to the right there, Temple Mount in the center of the photograph. And by the way, this photograph is taken about a thousand feet away from the hotel that we'll be staying in. So you're going to have, those of you that go on the trip, this will be the view of the city of Jerusalem that uh, you will have as you get up every morning when we're in the city of Jerusalem. So this is from the south, looking north. The valley there, the Mount of Olives and Temple Mount is the Kidron, and the city of David or what I consider Mount Zion, is this little strip in here. In other words, this little strip in there was the city of David of ancient times. And we'll visit that. Just another shot of the same area, a little bit further to the right. And by the way, the hotel would be to the left of the photograph there. Same basic shot. In fact, you can take a photograph yourself, and that's basically what you'll look at take the trip. So, we've been spending a lot of time in verses 4 through 28, describes a horrific period of time, yet in world history, a time that has never happened before, and the text tells us will never happen again, called tribulation. The Bible gives a lot of detail concerning that. The church largely ignores it, unfortunately, but I think it's rich in giving us a lot of uh, insight into this plan that God has, so we've kind of emphasized it in our study here. 
the next event after the tribulation that we'll get into, Lewis Sperry Chafer describes, which is the second coming. The second coming has the unique distinction of being the first prophecy. Does anybody know where that's at? Second coming is described in the very first prophecy. Um, I would probably think of another one that, but a very clear prophecy. Does anyone know? First prophecy? You might think that it's in Genesis. 3.15, yeah, I would put that one before the one that Chaper's talking about. That one uttered by man. Right, that was by God. Very good, Dennis. One uttered by a prophet. It's a tough one, tough question. Bible trivia. Yes, there you go, the book of Jude. And who's the first prophet there? Enoch. That's who he's referring to there. So the second coming has the unique distinction of being the first prophecy uttered by man. And the last message from the ascended Christ. What passage is that one? The last message from the ascended Christ. Not Matthew. Book of Acts. Verse, chapter... Sounds like, looks like. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 11, the ascension of Christ. Basically, it tells us that in, he will come back, how? In like manner, or just as he left. He left bodily, he left visibly, he left gloriously. He's going to return similarly. In this passage we're going to look at, uh, we're going to have a description of it, and it's very glorious. So, the second coming has the unique distinction of being the first prophecy uttered by man and the last message from the ascended Christ, as well as being the last word of the Bible. The last two verses of the Bible speak of come Lord Jesus. Yes, his reward is with him. Good statement. Another statement by Schaefer, the greatest theme of the Bible is also the central theme of prophecy. And that's the second coming, or you might even say the coming of Messiah. And we know of it from the New Testament in two phases, first coming, second coming. But if you think of it as a unified coming, it is a theme that runs all the way from uh, Genesis 3.15 to the end of the Bible. So, two good quotes. But before we get to verse 29, we left off in verse 28, so let's go back. This is still in that period of tribulation, and let's take a look at this somewhat cryptic description or proverb, you might even say, and this kind of ends the passage that deals with the tribulation period, and we looked at all of the preceding passages, and then it ends with wherever the corpse is. Kind of a depressing scene there, a dead body, a corpse. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So it's something some consider, in fact, not too many commentators. In fact, I hesitated to go in this direction because I couldn't find, generally, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So somebody has written something about the right interpretation of virtually every passage. And I had trouble finding a commentator that was going in the direction that I thought the passage was alluding to, and I'll get into it in a moment. But then I finally found one <laughs> that mentioned what I'm going to share with you. Most of them refer to it as something of a proverb. 
and it's cryptic, and it has this idea that there's this great corruption. A, a corpse kind of represents and pictures corruption. But I think there's more to it than that, and we'll get into that in a moment here. Corpse indicates corruption and death. Some look at the nation of Israel, the unbelieving portion, uh, the the nation that rejected Messiah, even during this period of time, is just a dead nation, a dead portion. And certainly the rest of culture is basically on its last legs. And had the days not been cut short, what? No one would survive. So basically a, a dead corpse of no value, of no hope of resuscitation. And I think that's true, but I think there's a literal aspect to it. And most of the Olivet Discourse I see, you look at it literally first, and then maybe there might be some other meanings there as well. I think what we have is just a glimpse. And remember, Jesus just gives us little short statements that you can find expanded. And we've gone to the book of Revelation on several occasions to see a little bit more of what Jesus is talking about. And I think that's the case with this passage. And what he's describing here is the results of this tribulation period. The result of humanity, the result of world conditions is like that of a corpse. In other words, of no value, dead, lifeless, totally corrupt totally useless. But it also, I think, refers to something, and you might turn to the book of Revelation for this one, and then we'll look at the passage that I think is in view. So this is kind of a picture, a visual for you. And then the last part, uh, where, wherever the corpse is, and I think this is the key to understanding it, there the vultures will gather. Does anyone know what passage might be alluded to here? Some of you that are familiar with the book of Revelation? No, that's Ezekiel. That's Ezekiel 38. Yeah, the, the end product at the very end of the tribulation is the battle of Megiddo. And in Revelation chapter 19, there's a description. So you might turn there and somebody be prepared to read it. Or where the corpses, vultures will gather. Just another visual for you. There's what's described in Revelation 19, a great supper. Who's got the passage? Start in verse 17. Bob, read it loudly. Then I saw angels. Now this is described along with the second coming. The second coming is, is described earlier in chapter 19, <laughs> and after that we have this passage. Keep reading. Angels standing in the sun crying out with a loud voice. Saying to all the birds. All of what? Birds. birds. Vultures. Go ahead. Keep reading. Fly in heaven. Come. Assemble for the great supper of God. There it is. The great supper of God. So verses 19, 17, and 18. Did you read 18? Uh, no. So that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of command and the flesh mining in. This is the result of the battle of Armageddon. Great bloodshed. In fact, earlier it describes the blood reaching the bridles of horses for 200 miles. Lots of death. This is after half of the population is wiped out. So this is horrendous. 
Keep reading. Uh, read, uh, what is the next one, 19? Okay, read the rest of 18. And the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, of all men, free men and slaves, and small and great. Is that 19? And 19. And I saw the beast, kings of the earth, their armies assembled, war against him who sat on the horse against his army. Okay, that's a look back at a staging to battle with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Armageddon. So we have the Great Supper. Birds are invited because of the devastation afterwards. Then there's a staging. Now read verse 20, which is the seizure of the false prophet and the Antichrist. Keep reading. And the beast was seized, and with the false prophet formed the signs. Okay, so these are the one the personages behind this revolt, or I guess more than a revolt, this attack upon basically God himself. And then verse 21, we have a slaying. Yeah, read 20 and 21. He deceived those who had received the mark of peace, and those who worshipped his enemy. These two were alive and the fire which burned, and the rest filled with the sword which in him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were See the death, mass death, and the birds again, this great supper. I think Jesus is just alluding to that in a very brief, short statement concerning the corpse and the gathering of vultures. Does that make sense? This is the culmination of this horrendous period of time, great tribulation. I think the book of Revelation is helpful in giving us kind of insight into a lot of passages, and I think this one is uh, elaborated from that passage. And you'll notice, beginning of verse 29 through 31, we have the second coming. And that's what we want to focus in on in the rest of the time that we have here. Just before we get into it, a quick review of this period of time. We looked at verses 4 through 14, and I've used Jesus' description of the beginning of birth pangs. And by the way, I think what Jesus does is gives us a chronological layout of future events in Matthew 24 and 25. So we have the beginning of birth pangs, the first three and a half years. Now it's not clear from the Olivet Discourse, but it is clear from the book of Daniel and the next major event that Jesus describes is described in the book of Daniel. Daniel pinpoints it in the middle of a seven-year period of Israel's last history, basically in this era. So we have that abomination of desolation in the middle. That's verse 15. Then beginning with the last part of verse 15 and on into verse, verse 28, we have the last three and a half years, and I use the same phrase that Jesus uses. He calls it great tribulation. So the whole period is characterized by tribulation, but the last three and a half is the greatest. This is where a lot of these horrendous events take place, particularly the one that we just looked at in the in the book of Revelation. And then chronologically, we're going to see in the next verse a description of the second coming, and that's in verses 29 through 31. So see how Jesus is laying out, I think, chronologically. And chapter 25, if you want to jump ahead, basically describes a portion of that thousand-year period. It starts with the kingdom of heaven. We'll get to that eventually, uh, maybe this summer sometime. 
because the Lord comes first, right? <laughs> so that's a brief kind of summary of what we've looked at so far. So now we're going to look at 29 through 31, and we won't complete that this morning. So we're looking at the second coming. The first thing we want to look at in verse 29, the what I've described as gigantic disturbances. And these, as well as what we've seen, nothing like this has ever taken place ever in world history. Now, some theologians that don't take a literal approach try to spiritualize these in order for them to fit within their their theology, but it just really doesn't fit. Hopefully, we'll we'll see that when we look at other passages besides what Jesus describes. So, let's take a look at verse 29, and it gives us the time frame right off the bat. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. What does that tell you? Is that clear enough? He's talking about immediately after that seven-year period of time. Daniel's 70th week. The things that we've been talking about for the last several weeks, months even. Now he's going to describe events that take place immediately. In other words, there's not going to be a day lost. There's going to be 1,260, is that the right number? 1,260 days immediately after. And that's the thrust of the Greek word there, immediately. In other words, no delay. And in context, this is already cut short. Three and a half years is already a cutting us short. Had it gone further, no one would survive. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, then certain things are going to take place. Geophysical, astrophysical, and we'll look at each one of those. So, again, immediately after this period of time that is started with a covenant, Daniel makes that clear, Israel enters into a covenant with Antichrist unknowingly. That kicks off this seven-year period of time. I mentioned that God is going to raise up, probably immediately, simultaneously, or shortly after, within a matter of days, at most, two prophets that are going to prophesy Messiah is coming. Jesus was Messiah. Jesus is returning. Jesus is Messiah. The nation of Israel is going to have an initial response of 144,000. 12,000 from each of the tribes. They are going to be the stimulus for a tremendous revival. Parallel with these seven years, I see chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, the six seals going parallel and giving us kind of a preview of the entire period. At least that's the way I put the, the chronology. There's differences with good theologians, and some of them see the three sets of judgments somewhat differently. I'll describe that in a moment. But the 144,000 are the stimulus for massive conversion, the greatest revival the world has ever seen. But because Antichrist is taking control and takes control of the world scene, he is Antichrist. He is the second person of the unholy trinity. Behind him is the dragon who is Satan himself, somewhat the counterpart of God the Father. In the unholy trinity, the dragon is like the father. 
And then there's a false prophet, so there's an unholy trinity at work during this period of time. Because of that, most of the believers that are converted in this period of time are persecuted and most of them are martyred. And we've looked at some of the judgments, trumpet judgments follow, and I see them as somewhat paralleling one another. Some scholars, very good scholars, take them sequentially. And there's support for both viewpoints, so you can take your pick. There's also, in the middle, we talked about the abomination that makes desolate, things that we've alluded to, seven bowl judgments. I think these will parallel trumpets and the last of the seal judgments. That's why, at the end, it becomes very, very intense, and things basically go to the on the verge of total annihilation. At the end, we have Babylon, the fall of Babylon. That's Revelation 17 and 18. And Babylon has significance here. It's kind of the, the picture of world government, just like Babel. Here's the last worldwide totalitarian system, economic, political, religious, all of those elements, and the battle of Armageddon. And we looked at the end of it, or the results of it, in that Revelation 19 passage. That takes place at the end. Jesus is the one that basically ends that. And then we have the second coming. Which is the battle takes place at the end of the thousand years. No, no, that's a different one. That's different. Yeah, that's totally different. Yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll see it has a, a purpose. Yeah, Armageddon is at the end of the seven years. Jesus introduces a new era. The laws of nature are going to be transformed. They're going to be different than they are right now. We'll talk about that. But before that, God is going to continue judging. This, these are the final phases of the tribulation judgment. The sun will be darkened in a way that it's never taken place before. And we're going to look at some parallel passages here. There have been, in the past, literal miracles where God has dealt with nature on a miraculous basis. And it gives us kind of a foundation to be able to say, well, probably what's happening here is a literal occurrence of a darkening. This is the futurist viewpoint. The premillennial, pre-tribulational view takes the description in verse 29 literally. Most other theologians spiritualize it. In fact, they see what's happening in verse 29 as kind of a picture of world powers, world leaders, world governments being shaken up and darkening or removed from their power. But I think it's a literal shaking which obviously is going to shake political issues as well, but I think we need to take it literally. There's nothing in the context to steer us away from that, and instead there are a lot of scriptures that lead us to come to the conclusion that we should take it literally, and I take it literally. Everything that we've seen so far is just massive, so why not even these astrophysical phenomenon that are described here? And we've seen in the past. Can you think of some occasions in the past where God has literally altered either the course of the sun or in some way obscured its light? 
Crucifixion is one. I'm not sure about Noah. Yeah, Second Kings, that's, a, that's one. What about during Moses' day? No, you're thinking of Second Kings, I think. In Egypt, one of the plagues. One of the plagues. And this was miraculous. Remember, the darkening was over Egypt itself, but not where? How do you do that? How do you pull that off? Not Goshen, not where the children of Israel were. And we won't look it up, but you can write down Exodus 21 through 29, where God darkened, and it says basically the whole land of Egypt. Now, he did that on an isolated basis. How he did it, I don't know. But it had to have been miraculous. And it's a very, very intense darkness, I guess you could say. Is darkness intense? Is it? Absolutely. Okay. So, Egypt. And I think, uh, who was it? Connie mentioned in Hezekiah's day. It was a sign, and in that context, God altered, it sounds like, the orbit of the earth such that the sun went backwards ten steps. In other words, uh, the rotation to have been altered, or even the perhaps the orbit. Second Kings 20, verses 8 through 11. It was about where the sun was still. Yeah, we could have included that one. You're right. I'm trying to remember the context of that one. Joshua. In Joshua's day. Yeah, one of the battles of Joshua, exactly. We could add that one. So look it up in the book of Joshua. Add that one to your list. So God dealing, and I take these literally. In other words, real events. Now, probably on an isolated local basis, whereas the one that we're going to see in the Olivet Discourse and Parallels seem to be on a global scale. And then we also mentioned, Bill mentioned Christ's death. Remember at, from, uh, what was it, noontime till three o'clock in the afternoon, an intense darkness over the city of Jerusalem, at least. Yes. Joshua 10, 12 through 14. Okay. Very good. That was during one of the battles. And I think Mary Lee was alluding to that one. Christ's death also. So you can add another one there. And then, the one that we have here associated with the second coming, 2429. And I think it's literal. So, I take not only the sun, but also the other phenomenon as literal occurrences that are going to be unmistakable during the tribulation period. So, the sun will be darkened, and it says the moon will not give its light. Well, this is normal. If the sun is darkened, then what would you expect? Because the moon only reflects sunlight, so you would expect the same there. But the interesting thing is that uh, there are some other passages that refer to the same phenomenon. In fact, you might even say several passages. We'll look at some of them. And the stars will fall from the sky. Now, this seems unbelievable because a star, in the way that we think of stars, we would think of like our sun as a star. Does that mean that stars from way out in the galaxy now come? That would totally obliterate the earth if that happened. Let's take a look at the word, and I've done a word study, in fact I did this a long time ago, the Greek word, and by the way, corresponding Hebrew word, but the Greek word, aster, I wonder where we get the word star. 
might be related to the Greek word austere. If you look up all of the usages in the New Testament, you're going to find out that it's used in a literal sense to probably refer to literal stars. In other words, real stars that are way out beyond the solar system, into the Milky Way, and even beyond the Milky Way. Literal stars. 1 Corinthians 15.41. In fact, somebody read that. Because uh, Paul makes some astronomical statements, physical statements. Who's got it? Okay, Jim. Somebody look up 2 Peter 1.19. We'll look these up. Okay, Linda's got it. And somebody look up Revelation 8. Okay, David, got that one. Who's got uh, 1 Corinthians 15.41? Here's a scientific statement by the Apostle Paul concerning astrophysics. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of another glory of the stars. The star differs glory. All right. Is that a scientific statement? Yes. It's not necessarily a precise or mathematical statement, but it is making a statement of reality. There are different kinds of stars. And I've got a list in another set of notes of about 12 different stars that have been identified, and Paul identifies differences within what we would describe as stars. There's white dark dwarfs, there's yellow dwarfs, there's... Bill probably has a list of them in his head. Red giants. What kind of giants? Red giants. Red giants. There's uh, a whole spectrum of, of stars. Paul in the first century already has identified that. Paul is an astrophysicist, all right? Astrophysical statement. So, 1 Corinthians tells us that. Secondly, and there's a lot of references to personalities. Some, who's got Second Peter one nineteen? Linda. Um, and we have prophetic word or confirm will do well attention is to a lamp in dark place till the day dawn morning star rises. The morning star rises. Austere. Well, that's not in the sense. Yeah, keep reading. Uh, knowing this first of all, that it's so Did you catch that little phrase, however? Morning star. Same Who is word. that? Same word? Yes. Well, there's two words. A stare plus the word morning. Who's in view there? That is a reference to Jesus. In other words, a personality. Not a literal star. Same word. And by the way, there are several personalities... That are referenced. Yes. Angelic creatures sometimes are referred to as stars. In fact, another one, by the way, Morning Star, Revelation 2.28, also of Jesus. Angels of the churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 16, they're called stars. So a non-literal usage. And Jesus defines what he's talking about in verse 20, Revelation 1.20. They are the, the stars are the angels, which in that context is not totally helpful. <laughs> the angels of the churches, not pastors either, by the way. But there seems to be angels that are pictured as stars that uh, have some influence over churches. David, do you have a question? Lucifer itself is a star. Yes. In fact, uh, I'm going to give you a list here. So we have... Angels of churches, angels in general, Revelation 12.4. Israel, 
Revelation 12.1 is pictured as 12 stars, 12 tribes. False teachers in Jude, so these are all in the category of personalities. Uh, that's uh, Jude 13. And then the passage that David's referring to, Revelation 9.1. And if you read the context, it is speaking of a personality. It refers to the star not as an it, but he. And then the description adds to it. So it can be used in a non-literal sense, in sense of a personality. But here, in Revelation 8, 10 through 11, who's got that? You got that one, David? Now notice, in fact, I'm going to have you jump to chapter 9 because I, I, I want you to see the difference here. There's nothing in this context that leads us to think that what he's referring to here is anything different uh, how the word is used in a literal sense. Now, before he reads that, in the first century, there was no word that distinguished stars, planets, comets, meteors. The same word was used to describe all of that. In fact, the same word, austere, is the word that is used of the star of Jesus that the that led the Magi which that doesn't seem to be a normal star. It seems to be something supernatural and perhaps an asteroid or whatever it was. But the point I'm making here is the word austere can refer to an asteroid, and I think that's what's in view in Revelation 8, 10 through 11. Same word. Want to read that one? Third angel sounded, there fell a great star from heaven, burning as as it were a lamp, and fell a third third part Mountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Okay, it's a, it's identified, and it has a particular role. It's one of the trumpet judgments. What is it? Fourth trumpet judgment or third? Right. Okay, and it calls it Aster. And obviously, if it were a sun kind of star, it would totally obliterate the total solar system. Actually. So it probably, in that context, refers to an asteroid, possibly a comet, or a meteor. And by the way, the same word could refer to what we describe as falling stars. In other words, objects in the sky that seem to fall and seem to, some of them burn up, some of them strike the earth. During the tribulation, a falling star, if you will, or an asteroid is going to hit the earth and destroy a third of the vegetation. Massive. And I take it literally, there's nothing in the context. Now skip to chapter 9, verse 1. That's the one that I refer to, referring to Satan, a personality, or at least some demonic personality. Read it. Angel sounded, I saw a star fall from heaven. Now the language is very similar to chapter 8, verse 10. But notice there's a difference. In verses 8 through 10, there is not the following language or any clues that indicate that this is anything other than literal. But notice in this context, and it's the next chapter, he's using it in a slightly different way. Unto what? Not to it, but him. And if you keep reading in the context, it keeps referring to him and it keeps referring to only things that a personality would do. It makes decisions, or he makes decisions, and does certain things that a personality does. 
So you have a distinction. You have little details in the context to lead you to the conclusion that in chapter 9, you have a personality, yet in the preceding passage, you have a literal asteroid or comet or some heavenly body that will be visible. Very late. In the Amplified that I read, it says that the angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and to the angel was given me of the shaft of the abyss, and he opened the long... Let's so it's not the, but it says the angel blew the trumpet, but another star fell, so it's not the star getting... Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, the Amplified refers to it as an angel, but it's identified. It's separate. It's, it's, it's separate. So does... In the uh, Amplified? Yeah, the, the, the angel blew the trumpet. Yeah. A star falls. Yes. The angel is given the Ah. Uh, I think it's. I think the star. No, it's not well, it's, you might be it's a musician. Well, read it in New American Standard. I got it. Yeah. The angel sounded. I saw a star from that had fallen to the key of the bottomless pit. Was good. Yeah, does the hymn refer to the angel or the star? The star. It, it refers to, well, it's not clear in the Amplified, but all indications are that it refers to the star in the Greek star? text. From the Greek? Well, the nearest antecedent, unless there's something that steers you away. Okay. All right? Say later on, this is a bad Right. Yeah. So I believe he is a Yeah. Some demonic creature. Anyway, the point being... Here in uh, Matthew 24 and the parallel passages, I think it's referring to some heavenly body, if you will. Maybe that's a better way of describing, rather than the word star, that in fact are falling to earth. So you're going to see a lot of meteor showers, at least, and some of them striking the earth during this period of time. So, and a star fall will fall from the sky and stars, plural, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, some scholars take that as a summary of everything that we had before. In other words, the sun darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It seems to be a fourth item rather than uh, a summary of the last three. And I think what he's talking about, I think this is another scientific statement, if you will. In other words, not just heavenly bodies, but I think what he's referring to here is even the forces of nature. In other words, gravitational forces, uh, forces that keep uh, the asteroids and heavenly bodies in their orbits. All of that is going to be totally disrupted. And I would take it in the sense of, in other words, a Shaking up of the entire physical realm. But if you consider that when Adam and Eve sinned and the apple was bit into, that caused the entire cosmic yes. change in yes. all of the physics that, that yes. we were before that we don't even know. Yeah, we made that point. And so that this could be a reshaking and a reordering <clears throat> of all of those cosmic properties back. To or, or, or near in, original, yeah. Beginning to bring them back into alignment right. with their origins. Right. The shaking up, I think, of the entire physical created realm. Does that make sense? No more well, second for-
But that'll still be in effect. Gotcha. It'll be limited. It'll yeah. Still be in yeah, I think there'll be some limitations on the second law. Yeah. And I think that's an allusion to what is described here in Matthew 24, 29. The law, the second law. Oh. A modifying, tweaking, tweaking of all the physical laws. And particularly astrophysical and geophysical. That make sense? So, not only astrophysical, but I think even others as well. The powers of the heavens, now that refers, to, the word heavens can refer to the sky, the atmosphere, it can refer to the solar system, can refer to the universe. So, I think these are physical laws that are affected. And, also here, we have some parallel passages, not only the Matthew 24, 29, but let's look these up, because these, do we have time to look at them? Let's look at one of them, and we'll pick up here next week. We have so many parallel passages, and I've only put some of them down here. What I want you to be impressed with is we have basically the same phenomenon described in the Old Testament in several places, and I think Jesus is taking these passages and saying this is the ultimate fulfillment. This is the ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies. Let's just look up the first one, and then we'll pick up with uh, the next one next week. Who wants to look at Isaiah 13, 9, and 10? You got it? Now, let me give you the background before he reads it. This is describing the judgment of Babylon. The ultimate judgment of Babylon has never been, has never happened in, in history. They were judged in 549, I believe, B.C., when the Medo-Persians destroyed them. But this passage was not fulfilled then. This passage looks at an ultimate fulfillment, and I think that ultimate fulfillment is what's described in Revelation 17 and 18, the ultimate destruction of Babylon the Great. And that's how it's described in Revelation 17. And it would parallel the same time frame that Jesus is describing immediately preceding the second coming. Now read the passage. Behold, day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. Cruel, the wrath of fierce anger, lay the land desolate, destroy its sinners, for the stars of heaven. There you go, stars of heaven. Will not be their light. The sun will be darkened in its own light. There's the sun, there's the moon. And it's associated with the ultimate destruction of Babylon. And then we have another Day of the Lord passage in Joel. And I think we have uh, some more descriptive words at the end of the seal, the last seal judgment. They all parallel. You might look them up next week. We'll pick up there and look at them. Thirteen. Okay, the shaking of the heavens. Very parallel. I think Jesus is alluding to the same passage. I think he's also alluding... Probably a combination of the Isaiah 13, the Joel 2, 2 passage, and there's even another passage that I don't have on the screen. We'll look at those next week. A closing thought. We can praise our Lord, as Mary Lee did, for his glorious coming. We can see in verse 31 that we will return with him. And that period of time will be unimaginable. Who wants to close with? Mary Lee's got Father, we praise and thanks as we study this. We thank you that you are in story of your gracious reign of all of you. Father, I also lift each one of us up 
trusting you, we will not be shaken in faith or resolve to magnify your people. Hold firmly to that resolve. Part of your solution, part of those who are swept away. Father, strengthen us, uh, sustain us, keep us, that you through us to accomplish. We be part of your solution. Let's properly pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just